Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 378 of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is sponsored by my new book, The Complete Compliance Handbook. It will be published at the end of April 2018 by Compliance Week. You can check out information on it at www.fcpacompliancereport.com. It's available for pre-sale on the same site. If you're looking for a one-volume handbook on how to do compliance, this is the book for you. Today I have with me Stephanie Yonakura. Stephanie is the former acting U.S. attorney for the Central District of California, which consists of Los Angeles. She is now a partner at, at Hogan's Level in Los Angeles. We primarily, in today's podcast, take a look at the always difficult decision on whether or not a company should self-disclose. We consider it in the context of the new FCPA enforcement policy, whether it has changed the calculus for disclosure or not self-disclosing. We also took take a look at the issue of whether monitors are now out of vogue or uh, just a temporary respite from the Department of Justice. It's a fascinating exploration of one of the most difficult areas that uh, outside counsel, together with compliance practitioners and senior management, must make if there is a potential FCPA violation. The FCPA Compliance Report is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Stephanie Yonakura. Stephanie is the former acting uh, U.S. attorney for the Central District of California, which I've just found out means Los Angeles. But she was also an AUSA and had various roles in the Central District office for it looks like a good um, at least 12 years and maybe even a little longer. She is a California girl through and through, went to uh, college and law school at UCLA and now practices at Hogan Lovells. She is going to talk to us about some of the issues that are really at the forefront, I think, on the legal side of FCPA compliance. So, Stephanie, with that somewhat long-winded introduction, uh, first of all, thank you for taking the time to visit with me on today. Thank you for having me, Tom. So, one of the things that, uh, I, well, I shouldn't say one of the things, I think the most significant development of 2017 came nearly at the end of the year, which was the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. And I'm the kind of pride myself as being the nuts and bolts guy, and it certainly had some uh, information uh, relative to compliance programs, but it also formalized something that began with the uh, 2016 FCPA pilot program. And I guess I wanted to ask you, Stephanie, from you know your perspective as a, a former insider, what did you think uh, the new policy uh, changed, or at least perhaps portended to change? I think the biggest change is the presumption that the government should decline if if the company follows certain uh, metrics as it as it goes through dis- disclosure. So you know, voluntary disclosure, full cooperation, complete total remediation. Those are all factors that came into play uh, along the way throughout the entire time that DOJ has been prosecuting the FCPA. But now it actually formalized the presumption, at least, of a potential declination if you follow those three. Uh, steps, which is potentially game-changing. And I think that when you look at some of the activity that's come out of DOJ in the last, you know, even month, there have been several declinations. It's hard to tell whether or not those were already declinations in the pipeline, since many of those cases had been disclosed years before. Um, But I think it does bode well that the possibility of a complete declination is, is is a real thing right now. 
The um, the other thing, it, it really, well, I think it brought forward several things. You certainly uh, articulated the uh, uh, position, or rather the presumption that a declination would be granted. And uh, there was some new information along the lines of what uh, the DOJ expects in a best practices compliance program. There was information on uh, communication applications and whether those uh, caused communications to disappear so that documents or at least communications between nefarious actors might not be available to the department. But the thing that uh, really struck me, uh, in addition to just the um, presumption of a declination, really was uh, what you ended with, does this really change the calculus? Does this put in place something that uh, people like yourself who uh, advise clients um, would really uh, point to as very strong evidence that a that a declination is in play, and it may change how you would advise a client to to move forward in the event of a uh, potential FCPA violation. You know, I think that's right, Tom. When the the pilot program came out, the uh, by Deputy Attorney General Yates that you referenced earlier, I do think that. The defense community and companies were on a wait and see. It, it really looked like if you were going to get a 50% reduction on your fine for self-disclosure uh, and cooperation versus a 25% reduction in your fine because you didn't self-disclose but you fully cooperated, I think that calculus was um, taken into play and not many companies seem to have uh, you know, taken advantage of that program. Meanwhile, a, a complete declination and um, the possibility, uh, which we'll discuss later, of, of maybe no monitoring, depending on if you can demonstrate your remediation and your, your thorough compliance program. I think those are potentially uh, ground-changing or, or, or very significant changes in the calculus that defense counsel and companies have to do now. Uh, you mentioned the monitor or no monitor, and that was certainly something I wanted to explore with you. Um, in the 2017 TILIA FCPA enforcement action, which uh, came in, I think, at, at number one on the list of fines and penalties, at least under the FCPA, uh, it was a multi-jurisdiction investigation, a multi-jurisdiction settlement, uh, but there was no corporate monitor. Uh, and did that signal to you as defense lawyer or at least white-collar practitioner that the DOJ uh, may be changing their uh, calculus around monitors, or do you think it was really a unique set of circumstances to that company and that case? You know, I'm hoping that it's a culmination of the focus on compliance. Uh, it started when DOJ brought on WeChen and, and, and then provided the list of compliance factors um, that every company should think about and determining how adequate their compliance procedure is. And I think that I hope that Telia topped that off by showing companies that if you come in uh, to DOJ after self-disclosing, you show that you looked at the problem, you got to the root cause, cause of the problem, you remediated, and you have a system in place, uh, a vigorous system in place now that would, that that would catch any such problems, that no monitor uh, is a significant benefit to companies because, as you know, Tom, monitors can cost hundreds of millions of dollars when all is said and done if you have to have a corporate monitor for a period of five years. 
Absolutely. Um, let me take that time frame back a little bit further because um, I think really starting in 2014, I saw a couple of cases, or many, and many of us saw a couple of cases that we scratched our head because we did not understand how um, the companies avoided a monitor, and it was two. One here in Houston was Parker Drilling, and the significance in that case is that you had C-suite involvement in the bribery scheme. And the second was Hewlett-Packard. Uh, Hewlett-Packard had a, a systemic failure of internal controls, uh, literally on a worldwide basis, multiple countries as a part of the uh, settlement action, uh, very bad conduct, and uh, Hewlett-Packard did not sustain a monitor. And then if I could perhaps move forward up to the um, FCPA pilot program, uh, we saw conversations around uh, that issue, and then in April of this year, the, the current administration, the current Justice Department announced that they would continue the pilot program while they would study it. And so what I really saw from my perspective, Stephanie, was an evolution of DOJ thinking. And um, with the two cases I mentioned, Hewlett-Packard and Parker Drilling, um, I studied those extensively and talked to some of the participants, and they made it very clear that uh, the participants on the civil side, the company side, and they made it very clear that they worked extraordinarily hard at the remediation during the investigation. And they thought that that bought them credibility with the department that they would continue uh, to follow the prescripts of the deferred prosecution agreements that they um, agreed to. And so I, I just, uh, I really, from my perspective, I saw a an evolution in thinking, and then an evolution in the way the DOJ actually uh, took this forward. Would would that be a fair observation from where you sit? Yeah, I definitely think so. And I think that the way that DOJ has has allowed Telia to um, to publicize what it did uh, in in their uh, no monitorship, I think, also is telling. Right, many times companies are restricted from giving, you know, certain details about their negotiations with um, DOJ. And that's another evolution point that you can point to that DOJ is trying to be more transparent about what companies do right uh, in, in their dealings with the government so that others can benefit in the future. But it is absolutely the case. Um, and I agree with you that Parker Drilling and HP, uh, you know, foreshadowed that later event. But, but I do think the fact that Telia came in, you know, at number one or, or, you know, that high in the FCPA history and had no monitor uh, really did solidify the fact that DOJ is taking compliance seriously and that if you look at an issue and, and that's also just, um, you know, set forth in the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy that if you actually get to the root cause and you put procedures in place then you're going to be rewarded, right? So what Telia has said publicly is that they didn't just send the lawyers in uh, to DOJ to explain how their compliance uh, program w uh, was fixed and would uh, and and how they were remediating. They actually sent in a team of compliance officials in to go in very detailed step by step with DOJ about their new compliance program and how they remediated. So the other, um, I thought, well, of several significant developments from 2017, one was a continuation we saw 
really, uh, I thought, most prominently beginning in 2016, and that was the internationalization and globalization of not investigations, because we had seen that, but enforcement actions. And we saw multiple enforcement actions across multiple jurisdictions uh, with multiple countries involved. We mentioned Telia, uh, which is one uh, one example. We obviously had Rolls-Royce. We had SBM Offshore. Um several others. And I think companies now are faced with a situation, Stephanie, where they're going to have to decide how and when to self-disclose to multiple jurisdictions, how and when to cooperate with multiple jurisdictions. From your perspective on advising companies, um, what advice can you give them? Thanks. Um, yes, we actually give them a couple steps, right? So before you even can get ready to self-disclose, you have to complete as much of your internal investigation under privilege as you can. And you have to, just like we've been discussing, remediate to the extent possible that you can so that you can show that to the government in the context at the same time as you're self-disclosing the issue. Uh, you have to prepare the uh, the summary of non-privileged facts um, to continue to be able to try and save privilege if if you decide to do so. But it is approaching multi-jurisdictions all at once. And even in the U.S., that means approaching the SEC and DOJ at the same time. Um, because even if you lag by, by a day or so with the SEC and DOJ just in the United States, the company can face consequences of that. So it is a coordinated... Uh, self-disclosure to multiple jurisdictions. And I think when you're thinking about that self-disclosure, at a minimum, you have to think about where the activities took place, uh, you know, where the company is based, where there is aggressive prosecution of anti-bribery and corruption. So even if those other two don't apply, so if it's in the, if it involves, um, if it can be touched by extraterritorial application by the U.S. or the U.K., or even Brazil's coming on strong, you have to think about trying to self-disclose to the the applicable or the biggest player uh, jurisdictions all at once. Now, you can't overdo it, so I think that that's part of the problem. You don't want to poke a bear where there's not a bear to be poked, but at the same time, if you don't self-disclose to a particular jurisdiction where you might face... Um, an investigation and potential prosecution, they're going to come later. So they can absolutely jump on the bandwagon after they hear that settlements have been done with multiple jurisdictions. So a perfect example of that is Odebrecht, right? They they did this great uh, cross-country uh, global, uh, global settlement with the U.S., Brazil, and Switzerland, and then all of a sudden they're facing investigations and Venezuela, Guatemala, Peru, and and many many others. So it's not a perfect science because um, you you might not be able to hit them all, but you you need to hit the major players. So the um, uh, I'm glad you brought up the kind of enforcement or aggressiveness, and and I will have to say that I'm absolutely going to purloin your phrase. You don't want to poke the bear where there is no bear to be poked. Uh, that's great. Um, but for a uh, international company, uh, how do you deal with the issue of uh, different evidentiary standards? We hear about Europe and the new GDPR and how that will impact um, investigations. Obviously, data in China 
uh, can be problematic to try to take out of the country. Uh, how can you coordinate those various sort of evidentiary regimes when here in the United States, you're obviously going to primarily deal with the, either the Department of Justice or the Securities and Exchange Commission? No, I think that is so important in a cross-global uh, investigation and case. And, and in fact, that is actually what a law firm like mine prides itself on because we tell companies all the time that they have to consider the data privacy laws, the privilege laws, these labor and employment laws in each of the countries. And then we might have to just make a calculated risk assessment as to which one we're going to follow. So privilege would be a perfect example, right? So in the United States, the privilege is the strongest. We're going to continue to try and make sure that we're protected by the U.S. privilege, even though there's no privilege in China. And if we're doing an investigation that crosses China, the U.S., and say, uh, you know, Germany, uh, where there's not privilege sometimes, uh, I think that's right, for in-house counsel, you're going to just try and maintain the privilege where you can, but you have to navigate that for the various the various jurisdictions. So not only do you have the t different types of laws that you have to navigate, but, you know, the, the standards as it relates to the anti-bribery and corruption laws that you are going to have to deal with. So the UK Bribery Act and the FCPA, although similar, um, have some different nuances that you also have to navigate and make sure that you cover. One of the things I think many companies, if not are struggling with, Stephanie, or questioning is the concept of the one pie. And I heard uh, the first person I heard uh, use that term was Carol Brockmeyer when she was head of the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission FCPA unit. Could you explain what uh, the one pie means and how you would either help a company um, get one pie or work with U.S. regulators to try to move in that direction? Absolutely. So one pie is you have a you have a a bribery situation that crosses jurisdictions. And, and so I guess you can use any of the ones that we've been talking about, but uh, it is where activity touches Switzerland, it touches Brazil, it touches the United States if we use Odebrecht. And, and the way that you try to negotiate one pie is um, you try and get the enforcement officials to coordinate with themselves with your help, but to coordinate with themselves to figure out what activity took place in each jurisdiction that can be tied to that jurisdiction that seems reasonable to tie to that jurisdiction. And then that jurisdiction, that particular, if I take Switzerland as an example, Switzerland takes the Switzerland-based um, activity and that's part of their settlement. And instead of then having the company pay the U.S. for that same Swiss-based uh, uh, activity, it, it, it is working. The U.S. government, uh, which used to um, play in its own sandbox, uh, just like you said, Karen Brockmeyer and even Leslie Caldwell before that, were touting um, the international cooperation and the way to tout that and to utilize the, the global resources is to make sure that each uh, country gets their piece of the pie. Um, and so I do think that when you approach uh, the jurisdictions to self-disclose, and if you do it at the same time, then no one and no one jurisdiction is going to think that they're out ahead, and there's going to be increased incentives, I think, uh, to to help have them cooperate with each other and and therefore divvy up the pie, uh, in in a way that makes sense. 
Stephanie, are there any countries that uh, you or your firm have really uh, identified that uh, you think clients who are doing business in there may need to um, uh, take a hard look at? And here I'm specifically thinking of a country like not so much Brazil, uh, because they uh, have been very aggressive for several years, but other countries in South America or even South Africa, which may be uh, changing its attitude towards uh, uh looking at corruption. Are you, uh, are you uh, taking that sort of proactive advice to any clients? We are. I mean, especially you're right with South Africa. They've been, they've been more active lately, but we have been focused on Latin America as a whole. So whether it's, you know, even Venezuela, but, um, but Mexico passing their recent anti-bribery and corruption laws, whenever a country starts getting active on their own to try and fight their own corruption, a la Brazil, um, that is where increased activity is going to happen. And we've always, I've always told um, our clients that when uh, back in, back in, I don't know, I think it's five years ago when, uh, when DOJ or the FBI announced that it was creating additional FCPA task force and one based in New York and one based in LA and not utilizing just the resources of the FBI agents that were located in those offices, but actually, you know, soliciting uh, nationwide, people, uh, agents who wanted to work FCPA to go to those locations, Los Angeles was going to be focused on Latin America. And I do think that when you look at the cases in 2017 that came out of, um, uh, that had FCPA cases, Latin America was an increased focus. China is always going to be there. Um, DOJ does what it knows and it knows China. <laughs> but I do think uh, Latin America is coming up uh, pretty quickly behind. Well, now I have a second catchphrase. DOJ does what it knows. <laughs> well, I'm from Houston, so as you might guess, um, and I come out of the uh, energy space, so the DOJ certainly knows Houston. They certainly know energy, and they're continuing to uh, take a very uh, tough look at uh, companies here. Um, and uh, the Petavesa cases, I think, are going to become uh, even more uh omnipresent uh, down here in Houston, uh, as well. You mentioned uh, Venezuela a little bit. Um, Stephanie, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but I was wondering if anyone wanted to follow up with you directly uh, or find out more about you and uh, your practice, uh, where could they go? Absolutely. They can either go to the Hogan Lovells website or they could email me at stephanie.yonakura, Y-O-N-E-K-U-R-A, at hoganlevels.com. Well, Stephanie, this has just been, uh, frankly, a lot of fun for me. I've learned quite a bit, and I hope that uh, you can find some time to come back and visit with us again in the future. Perfect. Thank you for having me, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about the longest-running podcast in compliance. Also, if you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thank you again for listening to this episode. I hope you'll join us again next week for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.